At one time, all of us were afraid of the dark. My grandparents, Cal and Juanita Burge, lived in south-central Illinois. They had a traditional home that had a basement. It wasn't a walkout basement. It had two skylights. Both were in the bedroom that was downstairs. They had a staircase that led down into the basement. And for years, I was terrified of just the basement itself. But after I overcame those fears, because I had to sleep down in that basement, even though I wasn't afraid of the entirety of the basement, always, there always was this one place in the darkest section. It had a bathroom, it had a bedroom, it had a living space, but my grandfather's workspace was probably 10 by 15, and it had a single light with the, the little draw, the little pull string, and that was it. That's where the water heater was. That's where all his tools were. That's where the dark corners of the basement were. That was a scary place for me. Well, last week I told you that we weren't sure where Jesus was when he made this prayer in John 17. That at the end of John 14, we were told that they all stood, but we're not really clear on what happened after they all stood up and Jesus said, it's time for us to leave. The Passover. They had just celebrated the Passover meal together. Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And in John 18, we are clear where Jesus is. For John tells us, when Jesus had spoke these things, and those things could be John 17, or they could be John 13 through 17. When Jesus had spoke these things, they went out, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. They're outside of Jerusalem. Now, they're outside Jerusalem proper, but they're still within their city limits of Jerusalem. And we know it was nighttime, for we're told that those who came to arrest Jesus came with lanterns and torches. We're not told if Jesus and his disciples had lanterns or torches. We aren't even told of the great prayer that Jesus prayed here in John's gospel that we read of in the other gospels. But we are told what happens. And what I hope we're going to see is that throughout the course of the entire book, what John has been telling us, what Jesus is doing, we see play out in history. That Jesus has claimed that he has come to do the Father's will. And in John 18, verses 1 through 11, we get a small glimpse of what it is for Jesus to do the will of his Father in the darkness of the night. Where he was faced with fear and anxiety. When he was faced with the authorities of the known world. Where he knew he was going to die the next day. 
Jesus went into the darkness. And our question this morning is what will we see Jesus actually do? This morning I want us to follow along in this text and I want it to reveal what Jesus did that evening with his disciples in this garden. And then I want us to talk about what that means for us. And what I want us to see are two things. Originally I had four things, but two things I want us to see this morning is Jesus' providential power. I want us to see that Jesus is actually in control of all things. And the second thing I want us to see is Jesus' propitiatory power. Now, that one's harder to say. Jesus' propitiatory power. Before we do that, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask for you to bless us this morning. Father, we ask you to open up our hearts this morning, to calm us this morning, to take our fear away this morning. Lord, we pray for Colin Rosser and his family and the passing of Miss Joy. Father, we lift up Jonathan Pence that you heal him from his cancer. We ask that you heal Joan Raspberry and Miss Cynthia. Father, we pray for Brandon Karcher and Steve Stanley. We ask that you heal Luke Shores. Father, we pray for Eliza and Richie. From this list alone, we see the darkness of this world. We see the hurt and the destruction of the pain and the suffering. Lord, may we mourn with those who mourn. But Lord, give us hope this morning. For we have woken another day and you are here with us as you've promised you would be. Father, we pray for a new youth director in our church. Father, we had 40 students here Wednesday night. Bring us someone who will love them and teach them your word. So that you will know, so that they will know of the great love in which they have in Christ. Christ. 
Father, we lift up John Crosby. John Crosby. We pray as his ministry at the University of Memphis has just kicked off a new semester. We pray for the conversations with the students on campus. We pray for his interns, Justin and Carrie Helms. We pray for their one-on-ones in their large group. Lord, bless his ministry. Father, we pray for our sister church, Redeemer in Memphis. Please bless Matt and Ben as they minister to the people in Midtown. Father, we pray for our leaders, for our president and our vice president, for our representatives and senators. We pray for our judges. Lord, may they seek justice for the good of people, for you are the God of justice, the God of truth who will not stand for injustice. Father, we pray for Alan and Ann Cochet. Bless their ministry. Bless the work of their hands. Bless their marriage and their children and their grandchildren. Father, we ask that you bring peace in this world through your supernatural power, and by the third person of the Trinity, bring your peace on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus' providential power. Verses 1 to 2 of chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for for Jesus often met there with his disciples. What do you think of when I say the word manipulation? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Usually it's something bad, right? Whether it's the manipulation of gaslighting, being a little passive-aggressive, or maybe silent treatment. We've all been manipulated in a negative way. And sometimes we've even manipulated people in a negative way. But there's more to manipulation than just the negative connotations. Manipulation can be good. The night when I proposed to Jessica, I had two friends with me. We went out to a dinner. We walked the downtown Fayetteville in Arkansas. 
The Christmas lights were out. Now, I manipulated some of that night so that it would go just how I planned. And I proposed to Jessica on the square in Fayetteville. We are told that Jesus' face has been set on the cross. We are told that his time has come. He is unwavering. He is faithful to do the will of his Father. And this picture that John gives us here in 18 is that Jesus is in control. He isn't maneuvering somebody against their will. He isn't maneuvering things so that he can somehow get out of what he has come to do. Jesus is not trying to avoid his arrest. He's going to a place where he regularly went. Tell me, if the authorities were seeking you, would you go to somewhere where you regularly went? No, you would flee and go somewhere different. But Jesus is telling us, John is revealing to us, Jesus is not afraid. This is why he has come. And this is what the next verse tells us in verse 3. So Judas, having produced a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas knew where he was going to be. And so he took with them a band of soldiers, which is probably close to two to 300 men, armed Roman soldiers, and also Levites who were given by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They went into the dark to arrest Jesus. Because Jesus had evaded them every time they had tried to arrest him. Or they were too afraid to arrest him during the daytime because of what the people might do. And then the text goes on. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus is in complete control of this situation. These armed soldiers, these Levites who are in charge of the temple, who are armed, Jesus goes out to meet them and he asks the first question. You see, God has manipulated all of history for this one moment. He has governed all things so that they happen just as he had planned them to happen. Our confession says, God has governed all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, and mercy. J Judas is acting according to his will. He decided to betray Jesus. 
the Roman soldiers, they are acting according to their commanding officer who sent them to go with Judas. These officers of the temple are following their own orders, and yet Jesus, by his divine providence, is in complete control of everything that we see happen here. And then we have this interchange between Jesus and Judas and these armed soldiers. If we continue in verse 4, Jesus asked them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here in our English translations, we read that Jesus said, I am he. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, the he is in capital letters to indicate that it's being supplied. For when Jesus says, I am he, he's using the Greek, ego emi, which means I am. It is what we've heard over and over through John's gospel when Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am he. And what do the soldiers do? They fall back and fall to the ground. Now, trying to understand this text, I... I texted, I, I text, I sent a text message to a friend of mine who's in the United States Marine Corps. And I asked him, in a battle situation, what would cause you to fall back? And he said four things. We would draw back if outnumbered or we couldn't determine, determine the critical vulnerability, a critical vulnerability to exploit in the enemy. We will withdraw if our line of communication has been severed. We will withdraw if outmaneuvered. Ultimately, we will withdraw if the cost far outweighs the gains for continued engagement. Now, many commentators and many pastors speculate on what might have happened when Jesus said, I am. Some say that Jesus somehow had another transfiguration, and this army saw his glory. But we do not need to speculate. We do not need to make up details to make this story any more important to us today than it was then. And here's the problem with making up details. Where do we stop adding in details to the scriptures? We run the risk of misusing the text and actually getting the text to say what I want it to say rather than what the text actually says. Here's what we know what happened. Jesus said, I am. And they drew back and they fell to the ground. And isn't this interesting? The text, John tells us, even Judas was there. Judas, who was standing with them, when Jesus said, I am he, all of them fell to the ground. 
trained Roman soldiers fell to the ground when Jesus said, I am. Jesus is in control of the situation. There's no doubt in anyone's mind who's reading this, if there's 300 armed men and Jesus says, I am, and they fall to the ground, Jesus is in control of this situation. As one commentator says, Jesus demonstrates that he could overcome this band of soldiers on their terms, but neither pressing his advantage to victory nor using it to escape he demonstrates his purpose to carry out the Father's plan. He will lay down his life for his sheep. And we can look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is the one calling the shots. And we see Jesus do what he has always done, giving himself up for others. He's saying, take me, you cannot have my disciples. And then we read in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This refers back to John 17, verse 12, that we looked at last week, where he said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Which, as we looked last week, refers also back to John 6, verse 38 and, 30, and 39, where, it said, where he, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me but will raise him up on the last day. Here, in verse 6, Jesus is speaking of a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual reality. God the Father has given him a people, and of those people, he will not lose one. He plays for keeps. But here, John is showing a real-life implications if Jesus cannot overcome 300 Roman soldiers, how could Jesus overcome the ruler of this world? But this is what this means. Jesus is in control. And this has magnificent implications for us. Jesus is being faced with his arrest. Yet he calls the shots. He's setting the terms. Jesus was not the one who was overwhelmed. It was the world. The world that's represented by the Roman soldiers and the Sahedrin's Levites. And this is the good news. When we feel completely overwhelmed with the darkness of the night, where that's where our sin creeps in, right? Our sin creeps in in the darkness of our hearts when we're alone, where the light is not exposed. And here's the good news of the gospel. 
You aren't strong enough to overcome it, but Jesus is. You aren't called to be strong enough to overcome your sin, but Jesus has. You don't have to be strong enough. You don't have to be the one that overcomes. But you must run to the one who has overcome. The story of the gospel is that we aren't strong enough. But that God is in control. And what the story reveals is that when Satan's face enters, we don't have to stand and fight. Jesus fights on our behalf. What this text reveals, what this text is trying to teach us is that Jesus is enough. He's revealing that these disciples finally get to see Jesus is actually going to do what he said he's going to do. He is in control. There is true evil in this world. I couldn't tell you what's going to happen later this afternoon. We've been faced with a true tragedy here in Memphis this past weekend with the Fletcher family. We don't know the outcome. But what this text reveals to us is that God is in control even when it seems like he's not. What this text reveals to us is that God is shining a light into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome him. What this text also prepares for us is that someday we will face real tragedy. And what my prayer is, is for us as a congregation, we will not flee, but we will be like Peter, who answered Jesus when some of his disciples had just decided to leave Jesus. Simon Peter said in John 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Here's where the gospel meets our true lives. You aren't kept because you're strong enough. You're kept because Jesus is strong enough. Our salvation isn't secure because of anything that we have done. But because Jesus is faithful. It's because the one in whom we believe, the great I am, is in control. And by his providential power, he was not afraid to go into the darkness to search out his sheep. This is what this text wants us to see. 
Jesus is in control even in his brutal murder. Even when he loses his life, he has the power to take it up again. Jesus has providential power over all things. And this is the Jesus who came that you might believe in him. But that's all, not all this text says. This text also teaches us about Jesus' propitiatory power. Propitiation. We say that a lot here at Christ Pres. What does it mean? If you don't know, you said it earlier when we did our assurance of pardon. Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. You know, this week, Jessica told me a story of her and my son Luke have been training for um, the um, Cotton Festival 5K. And they've been running out through our neighborhood. And Jesus said that this week they encountered a loose dog. And as this dog was charging them, she quickly stood in front of Luke and put Luke behind her. Now, the dog ended up stopping, and it didn't do anything. But this is the imagery of propitiation. God's wrath hates sin. Sin is the antithesis of God. It's the corruption of all that is good, and God seeks to destroy it, and we should welcome that. Because it's sin that seeks and kills and destroys. And it is God who is the God of life, the God of joy, the God of happiness. So when we speak of God's wrath against sin, that isn't a bad thing. It's actually something that is very good. Because what the scriptures continue to reveal is that we are sinful and our sin must be dealt with. For a just God cannot rule on sin unjustly. It must be dealt with. And that is exactly what Jesus has promised to do. Through this entire book, John has revealed Jesus is not misinformed of why he has come. He has come to bear the sins for his people. This is what John the Baptist announced when Jesus came on the scene. Look and behold the Lamb of God who will bear the sins of the world. Just as Jess stepped in front of that dog, here in the midst of these armed men, Jesus is stepping in front of his disciples and saying, you cannot have them, but you can have me. At the cross, Jesus steps in front of the wrath of God and he bore the pain and the suffering our sins rightly deserve. God's wrath charges at sin, and Jesus put us behind him and said, you bear it no more. And then we look at what Peter said, or what Peter did. In verse 10 and 11. If there was anybody who ever found himself trying to do the right thing for the right cause, 
only to do the wrong thing in the wrong way every time. It's Peter. In verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. My guess is this is what you guys think of me ever shooting a gun. Like Peter's trying to kill a man with a sword and he just clips someone's ear. I just hope I actually hit something if I ever shot a gun. But Peter here, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Why does John add this? Why does John speak of this cup? For if you don't know, the cup was spoken of in the other three Gospels as the cup that Jesus might drink. You see, Peter, however faithful, still has in his mind that he is supposed to die for the Messiah. He still thinks he's supposed to die for Jesus. But what Peter doesn't understand and why Jesus says to him, put away your sword, is because Jesus has come to give up his life for Peter. This cup, this cup that he will bear, this cup that he will drink is the cup of God's wrath that comes on the judgment for sin. This cup that Jesus has just asked in the other Gospels, if it is possible, please take it from me. But then what does he say? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not my will be done, Father, but thy will be done. This is why Jesus has come. Back again in John 6, this is what Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came as the good shepherd seeking his sheep. He's coming to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus has come for you. His sheep. He has stepped in front of you before our holy God and said, I will take the pain that your sin deserves that you might have life. This is what John wrote in his first epistle in the second chapter. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we could keep his commandments. But all who receive him, all who believe in his name, they have the right to become the children of God. Not by their will, but by the will of God the Father Almighty. 
Just as God saved his people on the night of the Passover, this Passover meal that they have just celebrated. God saved his people from the Egyptians through the blood that was put on the doorpost. Yet through this new covenant, God saves his people through a new Passover lamb. Through the blood of Jesus. And none that come to him he will ever cast out. Our salvation is secure because it was the will of the Father and the will of the Son. And the Son has accomplished his mission. He stood in our place. And because he is our good shepherd, we shall not be afraid of the dark. For the good shepherd is with us, and he will not leave us. And as David writes, he restores our soul. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath, our cup, he drank the cup that we deserve to drink, but because he drank our cup, our cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us through all of our days. For because of Jesus, we will dwell in the house of the Lord. There's an entry fee, and it's blood. But his sheep get to enter because the shepherd gave his life for us. When he entered that garden that night, he undid what Adam did in the first garden. For the same agent was there. Remember, the serpent came to distract and deceive Adam. That same serpent was in this garden tonight. But God was in control. And the shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus has providential power. Jesus has propitiatory power. And into the darkness he came seeking for us, his people. And he said, it is finished. Do not be afraid. Believe in him who came for you. Don't stand on your own power. Stand behind Jesus. Don't try to shine your own light. Point people to the light of the world, for in him is eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Father, when we are weak, make us strong in Christ. Lord, when we are fearful, 
when we're afraid about this world and the darkness all around us. May we encourage each other. May we point each other to Christ and Him crucified. And may we remember that death could not contain Him. But that all authority and power have been given to Him. And He loves us. We ask this in his name. Amen.